Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth, that we might be a kind of firstfruits of all he created. If you turn over the page now to James chapter 3, I'm going to read uh, verses 1 to 12. Not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. We all stumble in many ways. Anyone who is never at fault in what they say is perfect, able to keep their whole body in check. When we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal or take ships as an example. Although they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants to go. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue also is a fire a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of one's life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and sea creatures are being tamed and have been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With the tongue, we praise our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers and sisters, can a fig tree bear olives, or a grapevine bear figs? Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. This is the word of the Lord. Andy, can I just say before we start that we're just about to go on holiday and how much we appreciate what you do for this service and I'm sure I speak on behalf of us all. We just wish you a very restful, and you and Sue, a very restful and peaceful time. The power of words, spoken, sung, hollered even, recited, or whispered. However we use words, they all require breath to bring them into life, into being. In Genesis 2, we're told that God brought every animal of the field, plus all the birds of the air, to Adam to name them. God gave Adam the power of breathing life into words from the very beginning. The spoken words been with us really from the beginning of creation. God didn't write the heavens and the earth into being. God spoke them into being. 
with covenant words. And at yesterday's wedding, Susanna and Dom made solemn promises. They breathed life into solemn promises. And I think we heard, Mandy and I were talking about it afterwards, but I think some of the most beautiful words in the Anglican liturgy, the wedding service. So speech, the spoken word, plays an essential part in our lives. And it's been particularly significant in my life. From a very young age, I was trained in the art of what used to be called elocution. I don't think it is anymore nowadays. But I grew up in a world of verse speaking and drama. And pre-teens, my weekdays would be spent memorizing the beautiful words of Wordsworth, of Walter de la Mer, of Kipling, of our own Lewis Carroll, and of course of Shakespeare. And then on weekends, I would go to poetry and drama festivals all over the country, and I would breathe life into those elegant spoken words. And I was quite good at it. I got a stack of medals and trophies along the way. Using my tongue, as the writer of Proverbs describes, for pleasant words that are like honeycomb, sweetness to the soul and health to the body. Then I hit teenage years, and I rebelled, surprise, surprise. I refused to take part in any more poetry competitions, and I turned away from breathing life into poetry, allowing my tongue to indulge in what the writer of the second epistle to Timothy describes as careless, irrelevant babble. Well, years later, I came to faith here in St. Saviour's and I discovered that what I said, that what I said took on a whole new meaning. Well, we started our family, we grew our three lovely daughters, and one day Malcolm Round, who remembers Malcolm Round? Yeah, few oh great. Malcolm Round, our curate, asked me and the girls to act out a passage of scripture for the family service. We had one family service in, one, in those days. And the passage we were given, James 3, Taming the Tongue. Well, we wondered how we were going to do this. And I remember what we did, we made a large cut-out cardboard Titanic with a very small rudder at the back and some shoulder straps. And Claire, my eldest, wore this, wore this Titanic around her. And Maddie, her younger sister, guided her around the chancel while they avoided paper mache icebergs, which were the bad words. It was very effective. So the power of speech, the power of the tongue, has resonated powerfully with me in my life. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read James' letter, I wonder... I wonder what Christianity would have been like if he'd been half the letter writer that Paul was. If you put all the letters of James, of Peter and John together, those who knew Jesus in the flesh, their combined witness is shorter than Paul's two letters to the Corinthians. Paul, who never knew Jesus in the flesh, wrote a good hundred pages more than all the other letter writers put together. <clears throat> so that he was the one whose views on Jesus, God, Torah, ministry, life, sex, 
everything, afterlife and faith, they were his views that shaped the early church. But what James lacks in volume, brief though it may be, he packs into a powerful theological body punch. That's a rather weak pun, I'm afraid, because while James is into body parts, he's not into the obvious one that Paul was into when he wrote to the Corinthians. For James, it's the tongue he's passionate about. And if we can't work out how to curb them, James says, our faith is worthless. If all we can do is talk the talk rather than walk the talk, James says, we'd better watch out. The tone of James' letter is rather like a head teacher giving us a proper old ticking off. He peppers his letter with over a hundred do thises and don't do thats or else. I think it's one of the reasons that Martin Luther wasn't really very happy with this epistle. And in typical James fashion, his words come with a stick of theological dynamite buried in the text. In this case, it's in chapter 1, verses 17 to 18. Every good gift, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all. He gave us birth by the word of truth. God brought us into being by an active act of divine speech. After God had said, let there be light, earth, seas, plants, animals, birds, and creepy crawlies, God said, let's make humankind in our own image according to our likeness. God gave us birth by the word of truth, James says. So in effect, we became chips of the old block. Now, God could have made us swimming creatures, or flying creatures, or galloping creatures, but God made us speech creatures instead, made in God's own likeness, capable of joining in in the work of creation by speaking things into being, all by ourselves. The problem with this plan is that we turned out to be really good at it. In no time we'd progressed from being innocent speakers to using speech to blame each other, curse each other, mislead each other, and lie to each other. The prophet Jeremiah saw exactly what was going on when he said, they make ready their tongues like a bow to shoot lies. It is not by truth that they triumph in the land. Friend deceive friend, and no one speaks the truth. They have taught their tongues to lie. Well, of course, they also used their tongues to praise, to bless, (coughs) and to woo each other. The words simply rolled off their tongues so easily that sometimes people didn't even know what they were going to say before they said it, until they heard themselves saying it. 
And when they did, <coughs> they'd try and take some of the stuff back with apologies. Oh, sorry, <laughs> really didn't think about that. Oh, I didn't mean to say that. Oh, that was a stupid thing to say. But once the, the first few words tumbled out of their mouths, it was too late. The damage was already done. Why? Because God had made them capable of speaking things into being the same way God had. That's how much power these speech creatures had. The only power they didn't have was to uncreate what they'd already created with the words they'd breathed into life. In the biblical imagination, pneumos, breath, is where all words originate. It's how they're first made. Words were first handed down in the oral tradition long before they were written down. The written word came much later in history. But in the beginning, God didn't write the universe into existence. God breathed it into existence. And when we speak, our breath, our pneumos, powers our words too. You can almost judge the impact a word will have by the amount of breath that it takes. I'm so pleased to see Rutten's here because he's going to help me with this. For instance, Rutten, a word like anti-disestablishmentarianism, do you know what it means? Yes, pretty well nothing, actually. But it, it, it doesn't really mean anything at all. But it does take an awful lot of breath to say it, doesn't it? But it's not nearly as, it's not nearly as powerful as a word like hope. And the breath we put into our words comes out differently. If you try to say love with the same velocity as a word like hate, well, it won't sound the same at all, will it? Nowadays, there are so many words flying around. Well, you have to ask, has society devalued speech? Words get multiplied. In an instant around the globe, they get twittered, pasted on Facebooks, spewed out on 24-hour TV and the YouTube. Is it not surprising that we don't think they're worth much anymore? I wonder how many of you remember this. Sticks and stones would hurt my bones, but names will never hurt me. Sticks and stones will break my bones, but names will never hurt me. There's a few heads nodding there. How many of us learned that off by heart when we were kids? Heard it said over and over again, taught by our mothers. Trouble is, it isn't true. It isn't true. Sticks and stones are nothing compared to some of the mean things that as kids we can think of to say to each other. You go to any playground stand there and you can practically watch the act of creation in progress. How they suck in lungfuls of air while they pick out the perfect toxins to go with it. And then they breathe the whole sordid lot out onto whatever bones they want to break without leaving a bruise. Some kids have got it down to such a fine art because they've got adult role models at home that have turned descriptive word power into an art form. 
You can even watch some of the country's finest practitioners at work on your television screens. It's called the Jeremy Kyle Show. Anybody seen that? Channel flicking, of course. For other kids, it's more about earning a place in the peer group, in the peer group pecking order by outdoing their contemporaries. But whatever drives it, the destructive power of such words is a dark cloud of misery on those on the receiving end. And it's not just kids who practice this. Closer at home, I've been just as guilty of spouting out careless words, words that can do as much harm, words that can do as much harm as premeditated meanness. When my tongue starts to move, before my mind's engaged. Or, I'll give you another example. When I respond too quickly without listening enough, over the years it's been a painful experience to learn not always to reach for the wrong words, comforting though I may think they are, like saying, well, it can't be that bad, when it is. Oh, I think, you, I think you've got it out of perspective when right at that moment, the only perspective, the only perspective is the one that matters to the person who's suffering. Sometimes you've a second or two to breathe out words to try and nullify the careless ones you've just breathed into life. But if you don't do that, then that cold, hard wedge that you've just driven between the two of you it takes longer than you might wish to dislodge. Gossip's an obvious example. I can come up with a dozen reasons to validate it. Like it's great to make a new friend, or catch up with an old one, or make myself look really interesting because I'm a minister, I'm in the know, I know what goes on in this church. And yet none of these scenarios, none of these scenarios bear close examination. Because what they all boil down to is this. They serve me and nobody else. All they are is evidence of a runaway tongue. Nobody gets comforted any better. Nobody gets to hope any better. Nobody gets discipled any better. So while the wrong words are wounding and can open a trap door that sends a person into darkness and despair, the right words, the right words have enormous power to heal and to save. As Paul tells the Ephesians, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Because if our capacity for language is truly God-given to fulfill God's purposes, then saying is its own kind of doing. Saying is its own kind of doing. The right words at the right time can transform, can even save, a people, a person's life. You've only got to talk to the Samaritans or to a street angel to know the truth of that. 
So for all his scolding, James doesn't tell us just to shut up. What he says instead is, be slow to speak, take your time, think twice, choose your words with care, because once you've given them breath, once you've breathed them into life, they will have a life of their own that you're helpless to control. The only place you can control them is here, where they come out, which is the same place that the bridle on a horse's mouth goes. The difference between your tongue and my tongue and the tongue of a horse is that only I can tame my tongue. No one else can do it for me. The good news is, says James, that we are not completely on our own. When God created us, when he breathed his words into us, scripture shows us that the whole universe of God's life-giving speech is embedded inside us with the power even now to save our souls. Not by our faith alone, but by our God-given ability to do what the Spirit implanted in us tells us to do. As we show compassion for the marginalized in society, as we comfort the distressed, as we get alongside the hurting, as we welcome the outcasts and the downtrodden into our midst. When we yield to the bit that is the implanted word of God, breathed into us by the Holy Spirit of God, when we allow it to slow us down enough to choose our words with care, to know when it's time to stop speaking them and to start acting them out. When we let no corrupting talk come out of our mouths, but only such as is good for building up as is fit for the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. When we, in a world which has, where words have hardened too many hearts, in a world where, where words have hardened too many hearts, when we breathe out God's words, the incarnate word, then it goes on speaking, even when our tongues are silent. Godly speech words spoken under the influence and inspiration of the indwelling Holy Spirit of God are nothing less than the building blocks of his future kingdom. Alleluia. They are the fruits of heavenly light that this world of dark, shifting shadows desperately, desperately needs to hear. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He chooses to give us birth through the word of truth, that we may be a kind of first fruits of all he created. God's word made flesh, not just once, not just a long time ago, in one person far away, but now, 
right here, through you and through me, his eloquent speech creatures. Amen.